Thank you for listening to the Making Our Way podcast. Today, we're joined by Brian House and discuss the development of his 2x72 belt grinder. Austin's finally back, I break my lumber rack, and Jacob takes a break from customizing hammers to join us again and discuss the path of sharing knowledge. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, how's everybody doing this week? Good. Great. Great. So Jacob, you're back with us. What you been up to, man, since the last time we saw you? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a few weeks. Uh, surprisingly quick turnaround for getting me back on the, the show. I've not been doing anything nefarious, and that's the story I'm going to stick to. Yeah, we went back and forth on it. It was it was went for a vote. I'll say that. Fair enough. Well, I'm glad I came down on the uh, positive side of that. So um, I don't know, the last couple of weeks been uh, working on um, a project of doing uh, custom engraved uh, hammers uh, for a business. Day. It's a, a nonprofit that teaches uh, women. Uh, construction uh, gets them into the trades and the, for the carpentry class, we give them uh, hammers uh, engraved with their name on it. And so I've started experimenting with uh, using an etching spray to actually permanently mark the head of the hammer instead of just putting it into the, into the, the wood. I'm now putting the, the company's logo on the, the head of the hammer itself. So oh, that's working cool. on that. Yeah. And that's, that's a lot of fun. It turns out, uh, comes out better than expected uh pretty quick so that's that's really been fun and then uh, what's the marking spray you're using we are doing one called uh brilliance is the one that i, I bought so there's, I there's that's a couple one i have too there's a couple of different ones on amazon so um doing that and then uh jade's been doing uh furniture restoration she bought a bookshelf and we're in that uh candle shop that we've been helping with them with their branding and their their setup got a, a bookshelf and she has painted it to look, I can only describe it as a circus tent. Okay. It's like blue and yellow striped and it's the most hideous thing I've ever seen, but it's absolutely beautiful and perfect. Thank God she doesn't listen to this podcast. Yeah. No, no, no. Like I'll say it to her. Like it, it's, it's intentionally hideous. It's perfect for the application. It's, it's ridiculous. You wouldn't put it in your house, but it's going to be perfect in a retail space. So it's, it's hideous in a good way. Well, I think all the listeners are wondering, you know, what's going on behind you with you doing some remodeling in the workshop or what? Uh, the listeners who see what's on behind me. Yeah. They, uh, we've emptied out our, uh, our workspace here in the house and are completely redoing it from the ground up to, uh, to make the space more usable to, uh, hopefully bring in more hobbies. I see so, you got that Husky adjustable height work table. Is that new? Uh, no, we've had that one. You just couldn't see it before because it was covered and stuff. So. That's the table that I drove to Timbuktu trying to find yeah. uh, a few months ago, earlier in February. That's the one. That. Yeah, I remember that story. Uh, so speaking of, what have you, you been up to for the last week? So I think they say it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And that's how my weekend went. So Saturday... We dropped in on my in-laws. They like to drop in on us unexpectedly, unannounced, just randomly drop in. And so we were on the east side of town and I said, you know, it's time for a little payback. Let's drop in on your mom and dad and see what they're doing. So we go over there and her mom's working in the yard and her dad's inside and, and I go in there and he's so excited. Come check out my exercise equipment I made. And so my father-in-law is a machinist. I'm assuming he turned some old man dumbbells or something, you know, something involving heavy metal and a lathe. And what I walked into was the propeller ton. So think Peloton, but add a propeller. And what he's made is a wind resistance powered exercise bike that would kill a child or most dogs if they were in the room with him. It's got six half inch plywood blades on a pitch. And he, you know, he made all these brackets and stuff. 
He's got two to one uh, gear ratio, uh, you know, transfer cases stacked on top of each other. And so you can change the ratio from one to one. Then you can go two to one or four to one, depending on how much resistance you want by just flipping these transfer cases around. He's got his uh, pedals. He did the hot rod tooling on the pedals where he's got all the holes drilled in it, you know, to reduce weight. You don't need all that extra weight when you're turning the pedals. And yeah, it's just a real basic stationary exercise bike that as you pedal, there's no chain or linkage. It's direct drive to these transfer cases that turn a prop propeller. And he's got the propeller ton bike. And then he's got the propeller uh, hand exercise. You know, the old people take their hands and they, they crank something. So he's got blades on that too. And he said four or five times, watch your knuckles, watch your knuckles, which tells me he's wrapped his knuckles on those props multiple, <laughs> multiple times. So he says that he, uh, he can watch a whole movie and doesn't even realize the work he's putting in, which tells me it's, it's probably not enough resistance, I guess. But I look at the movies and it's like the complete Clint Eastwood collection, uh, the discovery channel. Like these are the things he's watching when he's just on the propeller going to town. So that was a big win on Saturday. It was a lot of fun. I've got a video of my wife on the bike. I, I posted over the weekend and then, uh, to the worst of times. So we do a zoom call on Saturday nights, every other week on the zoom call to about 1130 or so. And then I was tired. So I went to bed. I come out at six in the morning and my lumber rack has fallen off the wall. So I had a Bora six shelf lumber rack that was full to the brim and multiple, multiple times I looked at it and said, that's too much wood. I need to move, but I don't have anywhere else to put it. So I didn't move it, but it just looked like too much wood, especially knowing that neither side was in a stud. I used those like expandable plastic wall anchors that hold up like a hundred pounds. <laughs> <laughs> and here's why I, so in the wall, I only could find the stud and in the middle, well, I need the things to be spaced out. So I just picked an appropriate spacing and put them on the wall with wall anchors, loaded this mug up. And what happened was, see what had happened was when we ran the four inch pipe for the dust collector, I had to slide the very top board. This is a inch and a half thick, 20 foot long, 14 inch wide piece of Oak. And I had to move it off of the support on that side. So I'd have clearance to run this pipe. So all that board was resting on one side of the lumber rack. And that's the side that came off the wall. And so when it comes off the wall, what's in that area? Well, all that wood hits my bandsaw. That's the first thing, 14 inch Rikon bandsaw. And it falls over and it has my power cap, you know, mask on it, which I, it, those are abusively expensive. And it's leaning over and touching my Festool dust extractor with a cyclone and one of the ETS sanders on top of it. The lumber falls over my Delta wood lathe and my South Bend metal lathe. And, and I have a Tormac over there next to the Delta lathe. Like that's the tools in this small 10 by 10 footprint that this monsoon wave of lumber has fallen all over and nothing's damaged because I had a $10 Irwin squeeze clamp on the ground. And when the Rikon bandsaw went to fall over, this clamp was wedged. It's on a roller base. So it was off the ground about a half an inch. And this Rikon, I mean, this Irwin clamp gets wedged underneath it and props it up at like a 45. And so that Rikon clamp on this clamp held all that lumber up off of the sander and the lathes and nothing, nothing looks damaged. I've since then I've, I ordered a third one and we'll get into that in a second too, because this make y'all laugh. But since then, I've put all the lumber back up so I can access everything and everything looks fine. I, I can't find any damage. 
my solution was I'm going to just order another one. And instead of just running two, I'll run three supports and I'm not going to put the big Oak boards back on it. So I get the third, I get the other set in and I'm going to put the third one up. Well, I look at where this one ripped off the wall and the hole in the sheetrock, I can see the stud. The stud is <laughs> a half an inch to the left of where I hung the deal. So what happened is I have two stud finders and one of them is a horizontal style stud finder that has LEDs all the way across the top. And it does a really good job of showing you exactly where the stud is in the wall. Well, when I was running this across the, the wall, it hits in the corner and it hadn't, you know, it hadn't highlighted the stud yet. Like that side hit and I wasn't over the stud. So it just, I didn't know it was there. And so I was a half an inch away from the stud on that one. And then whenever I put the one in the middle, it's on a stud. And so the third one, I just went ahead and found another stud. So all three are in studs now with some three inch screws. And um, hopefully we have better luck this time. Yeah. When I saw that, I was like, there's no way he wasn't just running those in drywall. Like oh, there's absolutely. no way. <laughs> absolutely. Drywall with anchors. Yeah. You, know. said, yeah, you posted the picture and you said, uh, I found out what the limit on the, the, the lumber rack was. I looked at the picture. You didn't find out what the limit of the lumber rack was. You found out what the limit of a plastic wall anchor was. Yeah, it's a uh, 3000 pounds of lumber. So the best part was <laughs> I had one of those moments where like, that's one of those things that you'll just like fuck this and you just leave it and you never go back. Yep. And on Sunday I was, I, I saw it at six in the morning and I ate breakfast and I was like, you have to go pick all that wood up. If you don't pick that wood up, it's going to stay there for weeks. And so I came out Sunday morning. I actually put closed toe shoes on for safety and I picked all that wood up. Well, it was like death Jenga because every single board is a different length has different tensions on it because they're all poured over. So if I grab the one in the front, the ones in the back slide forward. But if I grab the one in the back, well, it had a, a torsion on the one over here. And so there were multiple times where boards just started falling on me. And I was like, just take it. You deserve this pain. Let it hit you. Save the festool. Your shins will heal. The festool won't, you know, let it be. And so I got it all down that day. I had the Formula One race on and then I put it all. We we're recording on Thursday today. We didn't record on Tuesday. So I had a free Tuesday night and I said, you know, I'm going to go put all that lumber back up. And I got it all back up on Tuesday. Well, Austin, we missed you last week. Good to see you this week. How are you feeling? Live, which is better than I was two nights ago. <laughs> it's uh, you ever have one of those nights where it just feels like you're a burrito that's getting squished in the middle. That's what it felt like. <laughs> so really rough stomach flu came through and uh, I do not want to ever do that again, but I'm back at it now ready to actually get out in the shop because it's been a while for me. A burrito that's being squeezed in the middle. Yeah. If you take a burrito and you squeeze it in the middle, all the shit flies out both ends. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. That's a colorful. Uh, I got that. Yeah. Yeah. When you're sitting on the can while holding the trash can sucks. Double cannon. All right. One guy, two cans. <laughs> So this week we're joined with Brian House. Good to see you, man. Hey, great to be here, Austin. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. And uh, so you've been on my radar for a long time. Actually, I came across you through uh, a back door to your business, which was a Facebook group, um, DIY Belt Grinders. And um, that's where I learned about you. And then I kind of came backwards through Instagram and stuff like that. So I've uh, been wanting to have you on and I call you... Uh, inventor designer of probably the most versatile two by 72 belt grinder I've seen. And, um, maybe you could give us a little elevator pitch who you are, what you do. 
Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Brian House. Uh, you can uh, find me pretty much on any social media platform. I do. Um, I, I'm a mostly. I'm you know. I'm uh, basically what I do is I make grinders. You know, two by seventy two belt grinder kits. What well, you know, essentially, my, we solved the problem for a lot of people being able to access a tool that they didn't have before because of cost. So we take the labor out of it and you work for it and build it. And then, um, you know, you have this awesome tool and we facilitated that over the course of the last four years, kind of doing YouTube. Um, we did, we started that on YouTube, then went over to Instagram and then started a Facebook group, which where you found us, Austin. And then now we're at 20,000 members on that group. If you can believe it, I think it's like 21,000 members of people just talking about building their own machines, you know, grinders and other types of things. So. Yeah, I'm I'm stoked to be here. So thanks for having me on. Awesome. And so um, maybe if you could just kind of walk us through, I know you've gone through, I think it's four, um, four iterations of your machine kind of as you came into the business. Maybe if you can kind of walk us through where you started and what were the big design changes that you found um, to lead you to where you are now? Yeah. So the two by 72 belt grinder is a, is a super versatile tool. In fact, if you talk to anybody who's got a workshop now, like more modern workshop, and it doesn't have to just be in metalwork, knife making, blacksmithing, those kinds of things. These are tools that are making their way into just about every workshop. And in fact, I tell everyone I talk to, I preach about the two by 72, not just because I sell them, uh, but because I think it's such an important tool to own, even if you're a woodworker it's a game changer. You can sharpen drill bits with it. You can uh, carve wood, you can do edges, you can do all kinds of things with this tool. And there's just a, a plethora of different types of attachments that you can add to this thing that make it do hundreds of different things. In fact, I think it's so important that it will be the next drill press, the next table saw. You know, I, I think every single workshop should have one. When I started the journey of um, kind of creating a two by 72, just like everybody else, I went online to try to buy one. And then it was, you know, wow, these things are three, four, five, seven thousand $7,000 for one of these devices. And you're looking at it. And from an engineering standpoint, it's not rocket science, right? It's a belt moving on one axis. You know, it spins pretty fast. There's a bunch of different little pieces you kind of have to understand, but it didn't seem that complicated to me. And there was a whole bunch of people that were making their own. You know, these guys who are kind of going to scrapyards, finding steel, tube steel, whatever it is, and they were building these things in their garages and in workshops, and they were semi-functional. Well, I built one. It's a very simple rudimentary one out of a treadmill motor, and I filmed the process and put it up on YouTube. And that video got a quarter of a million views. It was like the most wow. views that I'd ever had on a video ever. And I realized something that the market was really interested in this. And I've been an entrepreneur for almost 20 years now. So I was thinking, well, you know, if I want to pursue this, maybe this is something I should look at. And then I, uh, what, I, what I discovered was that there was all these people watching me build this thing, not just on YouTube, but also on Facebook and Instagram. And I had a small following at that time. But I had a lot of engineers, people who were kind of guiding me along, sending me information going, hey, if you put a bushing here... You're going to kind of, you know, work away from the, 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 uh, the, the tilting mechanism will function longer and easier and all that. So I started getting all these tips and I started making changes. And what I discovered was by doing that, I'm now bringing more people into my circle, people that are like-minded and ultimately, you know, built my first revolution prototype, which I use every day still, by the way, it's, it's in my shop. It's a great, 
great tool, even though it's, it was made by hand. All those back then, I did not have a CNC. I didn't have anything. I cut everything using an angle grinder, you know, just, you know, rudimentary tools and um, built that machine. And then some, a company came to me and offered me to make the parts. They said, you know, you've got a following here. You know, you've, you, you're building something kind of cool. You should put this together and do this like a business. And uh, I kind of hem and hawed about it for a while. And then I put a plan set out. My wife's in digital marketing. So she was like, you know, you got to have a newsletter. You got to do all these things, you know, to drive people yeah. to this thing. And I'm thinking the whole time I'm doing this, I'm thinking, ah, who knows, you know, maybe something will happen, you know, maybe somebody will sign up. Well, the day we released the newsletter, we had 500 signups and then we got wow. 2000 signups. And it wow. was like, wow, that's a lot of people like, watching what we're doing. And then the day we released the plan set, which was um, set about four years ago, we sold 500 plan sets on the first day. The first day. Wow. The first day. Yeah. And so we generated about $10,000 on the first day. And then ever since the, the project has just grown and just increased. And then so, you know, the project the, by selling the plans, everybody told me I was shooting myself in the foot. And I thought, you know what? We got to let this kind of drive itself. I can't, I can't do everything myself. I'm a one guy and I can't make all these changes myself. So then all these people are buying my plans and then I'm getting emails, you know, a week or two later, Hey, this is what you should change. I, I like this part of it. And the community really built, I was a facilitator, you know, that was, that was my part of this, but the community really built it. And then from that, you know, then of course it's gen one and then gen two and gen three and gen four, because you're using the machine more and more and you're figuring it out like, well, this is great, but I really wish it did this. And all these ideas come together. And then on top of that, you got people coming at you going, Hey, it'd be a lot easier to fabricate if you did it like this. And they were so right. So what we started doing is giving everybody credit. Hey, this person gave us this tip and they got mentioned in the plan set or in the readme file, the change wow. file. You know, That's just cool. things like that. Yeah, it's a, definitely a community project. I can take a little bit of credit for it because I facilitated it, but uh, there's a whole bunch of people that were behind it and not a single one of them asked for anything. You know, they are all just wanting to help and wanting to be a part of it. And then, um, of course, that just blew up into what it is today, which we've sold thousands of these now. And this is my full-time job and all of that. So one of the notes I had was, I was curious, how did you receive feedback from version to version to go up. And that's incredible to hear that it was truly community development. I tell these guys all the time in the discord that don't be scared to share your idea because what you're going to get is a lot of people with an opinion that aren't motivated enough to steal that idea. You know, yes. they're not going to get off their butts, but they will give you their opinion because everyone has an opinion. Um, one of the things I was curious about as you went from one to four was the process as you went from hand cutting the parts to where you are now with the laser cut parts and, and the precision, how did that process grow? And, and what were some of the growing pains along with that? I didn't think that that was even possible. Cause you know, I always thought that it would be logistically very difficult to ship steel, you know, that I just always thought, well, you know, these, the machine, when it's in parts weighs close to a hundred pounds. So you, you, you know, you you have a logistical issue there. We just did it in stages. You know, our first kits were just bare bones pieces, like just the, the D plate and the motor mount and a few things that were really difficult to make uh, by hand. And we took that and we went to a laser cutter, had those made, and then we started shipping those out. And that was just like a really rudimentary kit. 
Well, as it grew, as the project grew, what happens is when something like this, you know, as soon as somebody builds it, what do they do? They take a picture of it and they put it up on the internet and then they tag me and they tag and the, three more people want it. Then three more people want it. And then of course, through the course of that, you're getting all these questions. Hey, can I get the tube steel? Can I get the tracking mechanism? Can I get the wheels? Can I get the motor? Can I get all that? And it, you know, so over time I started connecting with vendors, machine shops, and then we all, now we have the ultimate bundle, which is just about every piece, you know, it's all of the parts except for the electronics. Um, and, and very soon we'll have the wheels too. We're, we're working with a machine shop that is making all of our roller bearings. And the best part about this is everything is made in the USA. We have done, our steel is made in the United States. Uh, the, the only things we are having a hard time keeping cheap are the hardware pieces. You know, you, a lot of that stuff is made overseas, like the nuts and bolts and everything, but everything else, all the steel, the wheels, the aluminum, everything is made in the U S and that makes me, and, and the hands that are making this are our hands of, of United States companies, which I really love too. So if anything good came out of the pandemic, it was that, you know, that we couldn't get things from other countries for a while. So people started valuing manufacturing again. So I had a, another thought when I was looking at your website, you offer plans and you offer the steel kits and it goes up through, but you don't currently offer the wheels and the electronics. I was just curious as a business owner, where did you draw the line at like, Hey, this is profitable. This is not worth our time to mark up and get a margin and then make our total project too expensive. Yeah. The, the, the wheels, we knew there was a margin there, you know, but the problem with wheels in this particular case is they're spinning at 7,000 surface feet per minute. So they have to be really high precision wheels. So we went through uh, about six months of research and development before we were comfortable actually pulling the trigger and making the roller bearings ourselves, uh, or at least hiring a machine shop to do it. Uh, the motor and the VFD, uh, the VFDs are made here in Florida. You can get all variable sizes of those things. You can buy from the cheapest cheap, that's like 85 bucks all the way up to $500 or whatever. The more expensive ones are made here in Florida. Uh, but there's, the, you know, to become a vendor or become a, um, a distributor for those things, it's cheaper for the guys that are building it if I'm not middling them. So I figure, well, if if I'm going to take my margin on the parts, these are my original parts and these are the things I'm, I'm making money there. I, I know I'm not going to be a millionaire doing this, but my, that's where my margins are. So if I can save those guys on the motors and the VFDs, that makes my project look more attractive. Yeah. I think so. That's kind of where I picked. I'm right you know, there the with you. Yeah. I think one of the cool things that you're doing is as you're developing new parts and pieces, because the, the beauty of a two by 72 is that it has interchangeable arms, you know, to, I, I assume you call them tool. I call them tooling arms. Yes. Um, and one of the beauty parts to me is that with your community, you're constantly doing new YouTube videos where you're like, Hey, check out this new wheel I got. Um, here's how you can make your own, um, axle and get it mounted up to your two by 72. So it's, you're constantly advancing, um, in that realm. Do you guys have any plans on going into selling those kind of attachments or are you still trying to do where it's like, here's how we did it. So they can kind of DIY it or. Yeah, I think the, my goal, I had a business where I had employees, I had a lot of people working for me and stuff. And I honestly dislike that process. I'm not, I'm a leader, but I'm not a, a great manager. I have very little patience 
for ego. And I, you know, I, it's, I didn't really want to like go into that side of things where when you start making attachments and you start branching off into more uh, machining type things, it becomes, you know, you have to in- include the one of the most difficult elements of any business, which is the human element. And right. um, my, my goal is to pro- keep it as DIY as possible. The reason is, is because I believe in empowering people by telling them, I believe in you. I think you can do this. And I know that not everybody has the funds to go out and buy a highly precision machine part. But here's what I'll do. I'll figure out how to make it and I'll figure out how to make it easy to make. And then I'll give you all the pieces that I can and remove the biggest element out of it. But you got to finish it off. You got to make that thing happen. And that's why, you know, I say I, my tagline is work, work for it. You know, we all have, if you want something bad enough, you're going to, you're going to sit down, you're going to figure it out and you're going to work for it. Uh, There's only two elements I think that are highly important. It's hard work and good luck. You can take, you can go with very far with both of those things. And um, I'll say this all the time. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'll work just about anybody. And I'll make sure that I can, I can facilitate that in others. Because I want to align myself with people who are just like me, who grew up with not a lot and wanted to do more with their time on earth. And the journey of discovery and curiosity begins with learning new skill sets. So if I can convince you, Austin, that you can weld, even though you're telling me, I can't weld, I can't do this. And I'm saying, you can do this and let me show you how. And I'll do it on YouTube and I'll, I'll educate you a little bit. And so you got guys that have never picked up a welder before. They've never even done any fab work before. And I'm like, with an angle grinder and a cheap Harbor Freight welder, you can build this machine. When they're done with that thing, you, you should just hear the sense of excitement for that, not just because they finished that project, but because of what the future holds for them. You know? Right. I'll say you sound just like Austin on that. And I, I love that, that whole little in segment. And to take a short break from the two by 72 revolution, you talked about the hard work, good luck. And one thing I noted whenever I was on your website, you know, you do have a very sharp website. It is a very professional looking, probably makes people feel comfortable buying things from you. And I was just curious about your approach to branding. I know you have uh, the Brian House logo with the lightning bolt. You have the Brian House logo. That's the interlocking letters with kind of the flag look to it. Um, just what's your approach to branding? How important do you think stuff like that is? And just coming across as professional as an entrepreneur. You, you have to, um, you have to understand that brand recognition is everything. If, if you can, if you just take any tool out there, right. Um, anything at all from a drill press to a table saw to a knife sharpener, whatever, there's going to be 20 of them on the market that all look very similar. The difference is the brand that's on it because that brand, what stands behind it is what's makes people pull out their wallet and actually spend money with you. Jimmy Duresta does a great job of this. He has, he puts his name on everything and, you know, he has made a name for himself and then proved that it can be done without seemingly selling out. Right. We got it shoved down our throat. I'm 45. So like everything from Nike to Coca-Cola to everything has been shoved down my throat and to ad nauseum. Right. But we are in a revolution of an industry now because we're seeing small guys pop up one-offs who are creating brands. It's a, you can do it. 
So my wife being a marketing person, she does, she handles all that for me. And she has preached from day one, very simple brand. You know, um, Austin does a great job with this with high oh, caliber. Great. I love it. It's, it's very, when you see it, you know, it's high caliber. When you see the HM logo, you don't think of the clothing line. You think of revolution, you know, you know, that that's the thing you're going to contend with a lot. People are like, well, HM, you know, it's everywhere, but we say we, we separate ourselves from that, you know, with the lightning bolt and all of that. So it, brand recognition is insanely, um, perp- it, it, you have to put purpose behind it, but you can't, you can't focus on it too much. Like you, you can only say to yourself, like, look, I need to come up with a brand, a, like a logo of some kind. And then I need to just push it out there on everything I do and hope people see it and start to recognize it. Um, it, it you probably saw Dean, like, as you started following my, my, my path, my trail of crumbs, we call it the funnel, right? So you, you end up, you go to YouTube, right? You're like looking there and you see it there. And then you end up on Facebook. Then you might end up on Instagram and you see pictures of me and my dog. And then eventually mm-hmm. you end up on my website, housemade.us. And that is by design because I want people, there's a old saying that a business coach, mem, a mentor of mine used to tell me, he's like, people do business with whom they know and whom they like. So if you're not comfortable being out there, showing pictures of yourself and your dog and your kids and, and, and showing what you're about, you're behind the eight ball. You're, you're going to end up just, you know, kind of probably doing, you're going to be at 50% is what I say. You got to go all in. You got to be brand. You're your own brand. Dean, you're your own brand. Austin, your own brand. Jacob, you're your own brand. Whatever you decide to attribute to yourself, that's what you sell. And those are great Danes. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. We have, um, they're both rescues They're Um, so I've got uh, a great Dane Mastiff, which is our older okay, one. That that's makes Mac. Sense. I was, yeah. I didn't know if it was great Dane or Mastiff. Yeah. Yep. He's a rescue from the Gulf coast humane society here in South Florida. And we just got a new dog and her name is Bowie. And she was a, a rescue from domestic animal services. And we're pretty sure she's Dane, uh, Greyhound mix of some kind. So, uh, Bowie. Looks just, I mean, to the T, like my great Dane that uh, passed a few years ago to the white paws in the front, the brindle, like I, I could send you pictures. I I'd love to see it. I'd love to see the pictures because we, we don't know how old she is. You know, she was found on the streets or whatever, and we don't know if she's going to get huge, <laughs> you know, or she might get like six feet tall. Like some of these dogs do when they're standing on their hind legs, we're, we're interested to see how that turns out. I love that you gave those as examples because I definitely, as I was going through the field, oh, he's a dog guy. I'm a dog guy. I have a shop dog. You know, like mm-hmm. I definitely, it was another way to connect that we may not be in the same vein product, final product wise, but there's still similarities there and it allows you to connect to a broader market. Do you know, um, Andrew Camerata, you ever watch him on YouTube? So there's this guy, Andrew Camerata, he's got over a million subscribers now. He made a YouTube channel. Um, that's just, uh, him working on like heavy equipment, right? Like big bulldozers and stuff. And he built a house up near Jimmy Durest, uh, like uh, in upstate New York or something, but he built it out of containers, like shipping containers, okay, yeah. right? And he has these dogs, he, ha- he lost one recently, but he has these two um, yellow labs. And whenever I watch his channel, it's like, that's one of my favorite things I ever, you know, I think I see those dogs and I'm just like, you know, it's just so great to watch a guy who's wrenching on these big caterpillar machines. And then two seconds later, throwing a Frisbee for a dog. 
I mean, it's just, it just warms my heart that it exists. So dogs are great. And I think everybody should have one. Right there. He proved your point where the people are following for that, you know, following for the the story, not the, uh, not the work that's happening. Well, and something in this digital age, you know, people feel connected. I mean, we'll never meet a certain person, but you still get this. I wonder what my online friend is up to and their dogs, this and that, and their kids that are doing this or, or this project that they're, are they ever going to get that car started? They build relationships with people they follow online and never see. And pets are one of the most empathetic ways to get into that groove. Yeah. I think when there's a lot of us that are very similar in regardless of what we do, what we work with, if it's wood or steel or paint or whatever, we all share that curiosity that we're working towards discovering more things, learning more things, enjoying life through tactile movement and just learning to work with materials. So whenever I meet other people, and I always say this because I was the odd man out in just about every group that I'd ever been in. And I assume a lot of you guys feel the same way. And it was because I was the guy that was always really super focused on figuring things out and curiosity just drove my, my motivation was curiosity. So when I get to meet fellow folks like you guys, I have so many questions. I'm just like, what do you, you know, I look at Austin's pens and I start digging into it and I'm just like, this guy is making every iteration of every cool pen it's and it's you can tell there's a passion there so it's like i just want to have a whole conversation about that you know and just discover what that's about for him what drives the pen thing i know we're not here to talk no i have that same conversation all the time like when will you stop we get it dude you make pens out of bullets (laughs) (laughs) jesus i love it man i think it's so creative it's such amazing thing don't even get him started on the surfboards yeah oh my god surfboards yes well, look, let's roll back to the two by 72 because I'm sure Austin has some questions and, and I had one, uh, you know, you, you mentioned it already. There's hundreds of uses for this thing, thousands of uses for this thing. I'm curious, what's the most unique use you found for that two by 72? Oh man. Well, you know what? I, I actually just started sharpening my drill bits with it. And that sounds like a very simple thing to do. I have a drill doctor, you know, I use that thing all the time. I love drill doctor. But uh, I do a lot of um, big holes, like three mm-hmm. three quarter inch holes, and those bits are super. You know, they get chipped and everything because it's so big. And uh, I made this thing a while back. It's not my concept. This is just something that's been around for a while. But it's called soft platen, which you, if you can imagine, you know, the face of a two by seventy two is typically very hard. People use glass, ceramic, um, high high carbon steel that's heat treated. But um, we put leather on that and then put another piece of like Scotch-Brite. So it kind of gives it a cushion. So if you can imagine a belt spinning just, you know, maybe a half a millimeter in front of a very soft surface. And you can take a drill, you can walk up to this thing with, and just with a drill bit and just swipe it across and you get a super sharp edge. That just, with that one movement, you're able to sharpen a drill bit. It just proves that this machine can just do about do anything you ask it to do. Um, remove material uh, from, you know, woods and, and uh, soft metals to very, very hard, high carbon steels that have been heat treated. It will just chew right through it. It's an amazing tool. My in-laws have a machine shop and they have a machine that sharpens drill bits and they, it costs 10 times what it costs to make one of these two by 72 Okay. Yeah, I, I had a guy who messaged me and said he has, and I didn't even know this was a thing, but it makes sense. 
he sharpens lawnmower blades for mm-hmm. a living, right? Oh, for a living. Wow. For a living. This is his business. And um, so he says to me, well, I have a special machine that does this that I paid like $8,000 for. So he can mount this thing in there, whatever. He says, I have a feeling that if I build one of your machines, that I'd be able to, to perform the exact same operation. But the cost is like one tenth of this thing, you know? And I said, sure, man, you know, give it a shot. So um, he built it and then made a little jig for it. And he's like, I sold the other machine for like five grand. I bought yours for 1100 and, and I use this and that. He's like, I can do all these other things with it too. The other machine that was like eight or 9,000 bucks, that's all it did was sharpen, uh, was sharpening Lower. those blades. Yeah. He said, that's the only use. It's a, it's a, it's a single use tool. And he's like, now I got this other machine where I can make knives. If I want, I can sharpen knives. I can do all kinds of stuff with it. So. And he had all kind of money left over for hookers now. <laughs> Don't forget the blow. I'm sure yeah. there's a lot of blow involved. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause that's the, one of the main uses that mine gets is sharpening my dad's lumber plants because he runs over <laughs> so much crap in our yard. <laughs> What do you um, run in Austin? You have a two by 72. What do you run? Yeah. So I wish I did. So I found you, uh, when I was building mine by, so my machinist mentor, Paul, he made a bunch of these back in the eighties. Uh, not yours, like similar, but not the same as mostly tube steel. And, um, so he sent me some pictures and I went by his pictures. And then when it went wrong, I was like, I gotta be able to find a place where people are making these. And that's when I found the, the um, Facebook group. So, um, so I kind of, mine looks like a Frankenstein, you know, monster version where it was just kind of like whatever I had available. And, um, so, but it's a, it's a, you know, two horsepower with a, um, 29 K back, um, VFD on it. And, um, it's hands down the most used tool in my shop. I mean, I mean, I'm running the lathe all day long, but I'm sharpening all my high speed steel, I'm, you know, taking burrs off constantly. I mean, I, I have it directly next to my lathe, so I can just jump back and forth when I'm trying to, when it's, it's right in my main workflow and it would be, I mean, if I, if, if for some reason it went down, that'd be the first thing I would make, you know, I, it'd be a tough call between that and my Porter man, <laughs> like which one is more important to me to have back up and running um, because both of them are so key. But I want to talk about, um, what is the essential tool? So if somebody I've been preaching two by 72s to our audience the entire time, like everybody should have one of these. Yep. And I get tons of people that are like, I already have a belt sander, you know? And I was like, it's not the same thing. Like they're so different They they don't run at the same speeds. They don't have the same anywhere near the same power. Um, and they're like, well, I don't have all the tools that you have. And I'm like, no, there's people out there like Brian house where you can go and make your own. So what is the absolute minimum tool set that somebody needs in order to complete it all the way through? For mine, it's definitely a welder, a drill press or a mill and a a tap set. You know, you need some taps. I I made the machine pretty simple. So you only really need a three eighths inch. Uh, three eight sixteen a tap and a half inch thirteen tap, um, but that's pretty much it. You need like maybe an angle grinder with a flap disc on it just to kind of grind your welds down, round over some stuff. Um, you can get away with just those rudimentary tools. Other things are very nice to have, like the clamping. You know, if you want to, whenever you're fabricating something, you want to be able to clamp things down and whatever else. 
But uh, yeah, my first, the first one I ever made, which wasn't CNC cut at all, was all done with an angle grinder and a death wheel and then a drill, you know, drill press and a tap set. And that was it. So my yeah, favorite online shopping options I've ever seen is grind your own welds or we'll grind them for 20 extra bucks. <laughs> yeah. When we, when we did, uh, when we started selling the tube steel kits, that was the, that was the big a thing and social media. So what it's interesting when you run a Facebook group with 20,000 people who are building your machine or have built it, you get all kinds of feedback, right? And it's not always all positive. You know, people were saying this is the hardest part of the build is grinding this internal weld seam out. And so if you go online and you look at weld seam removal tools or whatever, there's not a lot out there. However, YouTube, if you can imagine, there's a guy named Greg that lives in uh, Greg Porter who lives in um, Colorado, messages me and he says, we're working on this tool called the Seams Impossible tool. And we'd like to send you one. And essentially, if you can imagine what it is, it's, it's, a, it's a device that's got like spacers on either side that goes inside of the tube and there's a bearing in it and it has a carbide burr on it. So as it goes through, it drills, spinning the carbide burr, you can set it to hit that weld seam. You can move it left or right if you want, and it grinds away the seam. I have been doing this with a pneumatic file, which is kind of like a belt sander that's like 18 inches long. It's just a little tiny thing. And I do that, and we've been doing that for a long time, but everyone would complain about the weld seams. So I got with Greg. He, of course, sent me a bunch of these tools for free because you know I'm in a unique position to give him feedback on his stuff. And it's the best thing since sliced bread, man. You put that thing in there and it's like, and it just grinds it out. Now the burrs wear out, the bearings wear out and all of that. But um, yeah, we can, we can take out a weld seam in like a minute, maybe a minute and a half now. So that's funny. So I made, I found him after I, I finished this, but I made a, uh, a piece of wood that I cut a slot where I could slide the carbide burr into it and then drag it backwards through to remove the weld seam. I bought some like cheap, you know, import long burrs and uh, I shattered a couple of them, but it worked. Yeah. <laughs> I did it'll it for do a it. bunch of tool arms at once. Yeah. It'll do it. It'll do it for sure. Yeah. He, he's an interesting guy. If you don't know Greg's garage, uh, you should check him out on YouTube. He's got some awesome stuff. He makes guitars and all kinds of things. He's a, he's a really interesting guy. Um, love working with him actually. So Brian, I was curious as you develop a new product, one of the biggest things is consumables. You know, you're going through iterations. You don't want to waste money on expensive material. Uh, I was just kind of curious, what was that journey like? And did you ever have any things where you're like, it's cost me too much money to get to this next point. I need to pivot. The tooling is actually the cheap part. You know, it's, it's, it's the time. You know, so if once you start developing a product and selling it and not, and you don't have a huge staff to rely on to help you ship things and get things out, you can stagnate pretty quick, right? So you just have to start thinking about every single minute of time that you have available to develop something new. So to give you a frame of reference, like tracking mechanisms and things like that, uh, that seem fairly simple, take months to develop because you're, you're, you're creating them and building them and then testing them and doing all of that, uh, man, it's, it, you dedicate three months to a process 
and maybe not every day, all day, but you dedicate, say, two hours to three hours a day for three months on a project and it fails and it's terrible. It sucks. But you learn a lot. You know, you, you took away something from it. it. You know, failure is a subjective word. Right. So you, you really just I look at it more or less time. You know, there's a sense of urgency with me. You're like, I'm a business person. You got it. We have to keep making money every single day. We need to hit these margins. If we don't hit these margins, that means we're not selling, we're not doing stuff. And I can't focus on that if I'm developing a new tracking mechanism or fabricating another machine. So uh, my kids are getting older now and uh, they're coming with me now to work in the afternoons. And my 15 year old daughter is grinding weld seams in the afternoon. Awesome. So when anybody complains about grinding weld seams, I like to send them a video of my 15 year old daughter showing them off, you know, showing them up a little bit and um, say like, well, she does it all day, you know, so, you know, you can, you can do two tubes, you know, make it, make it work, work for it. And then, um, but, and then my son, Dexter, he's also, he just turned uh, 16. He also is now packing with me and they're bringing their friends from high school. So now they're now, now I'm taking these young guys and gals. They're coming to my shop, they're getting dirty, they're working, they're packing away so I can focus on other things. And right now I'm in the middle of developing a forge kit. So we're, we're working oh, cool. on taking and demystifying the process of actually building a, a blacksmithing forge, like ribbon burner and the whole deal. And um, I've dedicated a bunch of months to this and I don't know if there's any market for it. We'll find out. But um, it was something I wanted to do anyway, so I, I'm just going to do it. And then my goal is to flat pack it. So when you buy a forge kit from us, you get, you know, you get all the steel parts that are cut out and it's tab and slot. So you can put it all together. And then we're going to 3D print the, the uh, ribbon burner molds. So those all be done and we'll make some of those in our shop too, to be able to buy those as well. We're really trying to just take the whole hobby of making knives or blacksmithing or metalwork and give people really good quality tools that they can build themselves. But there's a whole bunch of people out there that don't have the time or the patience to figure it out. That's what you pay me for. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to hand you a kit. I'm going to hand you a 60-page document. It's going to walk you through it. I'm going to create a ton of great YouTube content and Instagram content around it. And then build a community around it that also will help support it. That way, you can do a bit, have a DIY tool set. That you can, that'll be a lifelong thing. You know, the revolutions will be long. They'll be here on planet earth long past me and probably my kids. And that was the whole point, build a quality tool in America and make it happen. I think there's definitely a market for that. If there was an option for me to do something that I built it myself, that was better than like, say you're going to go to Amazon and get a Mr. Volcano it's affordable. But if I can take the time and go out and build something and have the sense of accomplishment for doing it myself. And even if it ends up being more expensive, all that, the learning that you get from knowing how it's put together and how it works is invaluable. So I think like I, I, I started blacksmithing at Austin's. So all my metalworking experience is with his, at his place and his tools, but it's got me looking, you know, I want to get started and get an anvil and get a, get a forge. So if it's, if it came down to ready-made, kit from Amazon versus build something myself. I definitely. And I think there's a lot of people out there like me. Yeah, I think so too. I, you know, and you think about it, Mr. Volcano is great for starters. You know, I have a devil's forge. It's awesome, but it is really inefficient. 
uh, it heats up my shop a lot. It, you know, there's a lot of problems with it and it needs to be modified regularly. It needs to be cleaned out. There's all kinds of issues. So we're just like two by 72. We're taking that and the concept of build this one time and, you know, we're going to make it so you can disassemble it and clean it and, and redo the insulation. If the, once the fire break starts to wear down, it'll all be readily accessible. Things like this are not thought through, you know, when people are building their own, they're taking a, say a propane tank and they're converting it over. It's a great way to do it, but let's, let's, you know, take it up a notch so that when you put in a ribbon burner to this thing, you're not burning, you know, I had one guy tell me he burns through a hundred pounds of propane when he makes a mosaic uh, pattern Damascus billet. And, and it, there's really no reason for that. If you're running an efficient system that's insulated and it's running on a, a ribbon burner, we can reduce the overall cost, the overhead cost of the consumable, which is propane. So uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of benefits to it. So you spend a little bit more money up front to make it happen, but you get a really good quality tool that's efficient. Austin and I talk about this all the time that too many people who want to get into side hustles or business, they think that final products is the only thing that you can only deliverable, that a forged knife is what the deliverable is. And I say all the time, the money is in providing, providing the supplies to that person. You know, the guy selling knife scales is going to do way better selling knife scales to a hundred knife makers than the end user who's making 16 knives to sell at the local craft market. That if you can find ways to provide a value product to a maker, you know, that middleman or whatever, that there's a market there too. There, there's multi levels of buying and selling. It doesn't have to always be final product. So I'm, I'm really excited hearing that you're taking your experiences with the revolution and, and you're moving on to other products like that, that now you're selling to the person who's trying to do it on their own. That's awesome. It's a natural progression. I think, you know, if you, if you look at anybody who wants to do this work, the grinder is kind of the beginning. Like it's like one of the tools. I think if you decide to get in a knife making or blacksmithing, you really got to have a grinder of some kind. And then once you start working with like I got sucked into the whole um, pattern welded Damascus and just figuring that whole thing out, you start to realize how expensive the hobby can become, you know, it, it because of overhead, you know, consumables. It That's why really I just expensive. go to Austin's house to blacksmith. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love these classes you're doing, Austin, man. It's really yeah, the fun high to watch camp journey. was awesome. Dude, it's what a great thing. The, the other um, business model that I think is, not only lucrative in finances, but lucrative in um, good karma is education. So if you can do it and you can get people involved and keep them busy with really cool stuff like your classes, Austin, I think that's just such good karma, man. It's beautiful to see. I don't have the patience for the public myself, but maybe <laughs> one day, you never know. Now is the, um, the benchtop hydraulic press, is that your design also? Is that another one that you're working on? That is not my design. That is actually, I was working on a design to do it. The grinder project got so uh, out of control, busy that I didn't have time to actually focus on the press project. But there's a gentleman in Franklin, Tennessee. His name's Clark Taplin. I became friends with him online. We're very similar guys. You know, we like to figure things out. We can look at something and fabricate it or whatever. And he saw the same thing I saw in, in grinders, he saw in presses. And that's, 
it's not that complicated. I think I could do this. I can make one. So Clark makes them in Franklin, Tennessee. Um, they're reasonable, uh, I think, for what you get. And it, the one that I have is a 25-ton benchtop press, which I'd never seen before. You know, you got these other bigger manufacturers making benchtop presses, but they don't kind of they don't make them that strong. I don't know why. I don't know if there's there's a liability or something along those lines. I think the the biggest benchtop you can get is like a 17 now or a 16. But uh, Clark has managed to do it. And what I like about it is, is that it's made by a guy kind of like me, where he's doing it in his, his home workshop. He's, he's making these things by hand. So, you know, he did every weld. He put it all together himself. I love supporting his work. So he actually has a website now. So if you're interested in looking at his stuff, it's clarkironforge.com. You can go check him out. Um, and he's starting a YouTube channel. He's an older guy, but he's, um, he's older than me anyway, I should say. But uh, he's just a, a fantastic human being. And I love doing business with him. Uh, one other thing I want to bring up like a little bit of a pivot is, uh, just talking about your YouTube channel. Um, there's definitely a level of production there that is above and beyond what you see on a, a lot of channels, especially Austin's. Um, you have, like, sorry, uh, you have, uh, like even you're putting your lights on the, uh, the hydraulic lift to change the lighting in the studio and stuff like, uh, I want to compliment you on that, but I want to talk, uh, I want you to talk a little bit about that, about uh, kind of what led you to making those decisions. Yeah. My second passion is film. You know, I went to film school at NIU and uh, studied film and wanted to make, uh, make production pieces. I worked in television for a long time. Um, I like telling a story, you know, that's, that's the thing about um, making, making videos on YouTube. It's, like if you can educate people and entertain them at the same time, you're probably going to do okay. Uh, and that, when I first started, I didn't even know how to use my camera. You know, I was just shooting things and autofocus is kind of coming and going. Everything's blurry. I didn't know. I didn't understand the settings. And then I just, it, just like anything, if you dedicate enough time to it and energy to it, you know, you get better at it as you go. So if you talk to anybody about YouTube videos, it's make a hundred of them. And then you'll start actually making YouTube videos, you know, the first hundred are pure shit, you know, or whatever. But um, I love the production side of things and the lighting system in my shop is really important to me. Um, I've, I just, I really feel like if I can shed light properly and give people good production value, they'll sit through the boring stuff where I'm explaining secondary and primary axes and heat treating steels and all of that. So if I can keep them in their seats watching, you have to remember when you're when you consume visual entertainment, you're you're dedicating not only your ears but your eyes. And as you know, your phone's going off a hundred times a day with a million notifications from Instagram and Facebook and all these other places, phone calls and family and everything else. To get somebody to sit down for twenty minutes and watch something. Let alone, a, I have a, a, my, one of my largest, longest viewed videos is my revolution build videos. And those are almost two hours long, you know, and people sit through those. So you, you really, you really got to give them the A plus treatment. You got to, you got to look at your audience and go, I want these people to sit through this. I want them to watch this. This is important that they're learning something. So make it visually interesting. If you can do that. Yeah. I think you can, you can win. I wanted to piggyback on the YouTube thing because you also do have a podcast. 
Um, it's the work for it podcast. And you, you go into the professional side of making and, and turning making into a business. So I just wanted to make sure everybody was aware of that. And then I wanted to go into a segment we call this or that, where we give you two options and then you kind of pick your favorite if you could only have one. So the first one, if you had to pick, what do you like better making a podcast or making a YouTube video? I like making the podcast better. I mean, they're just easy. You know, yeah, you, you have better co-hosts than I have. <laughs> Man, you guys are catching some shrapnel tonight. I love it. I love it. Um, I, I love the podcast and, and I never thought I would do a podcast. I was approached by Craig Lockwood from Knife Talk and, you know, he pitched me the whole concept of the makery and I bought into it. I was like, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll try this. And then I realized after like creating maybe like 40 shows or something, how powerful this medium is because people, our audience, they're, they're working typically. So they can't dedicate their eyes, but they can dedicate their ears. And in order to just like YouTube, you need to entertain people. Right. But you, you know, you're going to be talking about business or talking about something you have to, you have to really spice it up. So I bring all my problems to my, to my podcast. And I, I bring them there and I air them out and I get a lot of really great feedback from the, the listeners because I can tell them my problems and they respond in DMS and messages. And yeah, that's, that's what, powerful, man. I agree. I say, I think drama brings ears in. I wanted to do a segment where we find a project and then just tear it to shreds and then get all the heat from people being upset, but Hey, there's no bad pub. So <laughs> Christy is too nice though. Christy says we can't be mean to people and stuff like that. So we'll go unless in they the, unless they were to submit them themselves. That's what we said. We said, what if they sent them in as a you know roast my project? They knew it was yes. coming. Maybe that's it'll be I a segment do. soon. Well, um, I like that idea. We'll hit the knife vein, power hammer or hydraulic press. I've only used a press, and I I gotta say. I would like to have both and I'm actually building a pneumatic power hammer right now. I, I will probably lean more towards the press. You have more control. It's not as loud. You know, you don't have the, the, the rumble of the, the hammer coming down the Ram coming down. I will say, I, I, I can't really truly say because I don't have both, but um, I'm going to say probably the press on belts, carbide or aluminum oxide for your sanding belts. Ceramic. Ceramic. Uh, Ceramic is what, yeah. Ceramic is the bee's knees, man. Like um, my, I have ceramic belts that are like three years old that just keep, keep grinding away. Um, I do like uh, um, the carbide ones as well. There's a few, it depends on the grit, you know, but I, I lean heavily towards the ceramics. On a carry knife folder in the pocket or fixed blade on the hip? folder in a pocket with a belt uh, or like a pocket clip belt clip. Yeah. And then last one that the listeners can't see, but he's got a Led Zeppelin shirt on. So Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd. Oh God, you can't make me pick between those two. (laughs) There's no wrong. It's one or the other, man. That's offside. Uh, I got to say Pink Floyd then if I had to pick. All right. Good deal. So we ask everybody that comes on the podcast, this question, and it's the three tools question. So if you were going to leave your workshop now and start a new workshop, and you can only start out with three tools that you have now, what would be the three tools that you would choose? Definitely a mill. That's like number one for me. Like I'm using, I use a mill every day. 
for multiple purposes and a two by 72 belt grinder. It's the second one and a port of bandsaw on a stand. Those three tools you can, I would also, if I could throw a fourth in there, say a lathe, but with those three tools, I feel like you can do 90% of everything. I thought he was going to say a pack of 15 and 16 year olds to, you know, <laughs> deeper welds and hands are good too. Hands are good too. need a lot of, they are, they are my favorite thing and my least favorite thing. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's a catch 22. <laughs> That's for sure. Cool, man. Well, this has been great. If you can let everybody know where they can find you. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at housemade.us. My website is also www.housemade.us. You can find me on Facebook. My name is Brian Housewort, actually, is my full name. And then you can go to find my uh, Facebook group, which is 21,000 people discussing homemade machines. And it's called DIY Belt Grinders and Machines. Um, and I'm trying to think, I think that's pretty much it. Oh, YouTube. Yeah. We can't forget YouTube. My YouTube channel is called housemade. So it's all one word house M A D E. And the podcast. Oh, the podcast, the work for it podcast. And you can find that on any major podcasting platform. Only fans. Just, just on the weekends, Austin, you know, okay. this. Come on. <laughs> it, surprisingly, it's also called work for it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Actually, it's called twerk for it, Dean. Twerk for it. Yeah, it was a better joke. Man. <laughs> That's why you're the inspiration. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much for having me on here. It was such a blast. And uh, we got to have you guys on the Work For It podcast. Anytime. Come over and cross-promote this thing. Let's get Anytime. it Anytime. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Thanks again. On. Good to meet you. Appreciate you. All right, cool. All right. I really enjoyed meeting Brian. One thing that really stands out to me with him is how he's been so opening up up front with the design process on his grinder. I mean, he built the whole thing with the community on YouTube. And mm -hmm. I think that's uh that's really a, a sign of the, the times with the, the YouTube generation, people coming up, makers learning all of the stuff on YouTube and getting all their information for free, getting their whole education for free on the internet. And so I see, you see a lot of makers now that are, that are more willing to, to share that information. I know the older generations, well, you know, you had to go through an apprenticeship, you know, you had to fight to get the job. You had to sweep floors just to start being able to learn. So they didn't want to share the information. And right. nowadays it's people just, you know, they'll giving away trade secrets in a DM for no reason. And I think, I think it's wonderful. Not only is it wonderful. So one complaint I always had about education, I'm from a small town, I went to a small high school and I didn't know what careers were out there because it wasn't like someone was inviting me to look behind the curtain and see what the machine shop was like or what this fabrication yard was doing or what they're doing at this production facility. You know, I, and the Internet wasn't really around for me to get on YouTube and see what was out there or what entrepreneurs were doing. And now you can be a, a youngster and look online or be inspired by people you follow on on Instagram or whatever social media and say, oh, that's what I want to do as I get older. Um, I was talking to a friend today. I spent so much time trying to make $40,000 when I was 25, when I should have been worried about making $20,000 and set myself up for when I was 40 years old. You know, I was, I, I, my priorities were all out of skew because I didn't understand what truly was out there. And I feel like nowadays, because people are so much more willing to share what they do and how the process works and bring you in that it, 
it allows people to be engaged and discover maybe passions that before they would have never known they had. I think that's true. And I think also you're going to see a resurgence of older guys that didn't have the chance to learn something when they were younger. And I think you are seeing it, you know, obviously they're turning into makers in their later life now that they have more free time and they're like finding people on YouTube to learn from where they wouldn't have had, like nobody's going to take a 50 year old guy into a shop as an apprentice. Like they're just not going to do that. Yeah. Well now you don't have to, you can, you can learn on, on YouTube or learn, you know, and I mean, online classes now are, are even with a little bit of a fee are still great resources, you know? Right. You're seeing trades that were on the verge of dying out, having a resurgence. I mean, people, there's more blacksmiths now than there have been since the industrial revolution, you know? And it's not only that before it was kind of a silo. You had master to apprentice, master apprentice. If your master didn't know, a specific technique, you just didn't learn it. You know, right. maybe you did, if you went through your journeyman and you actually did a true journeyman's trip to see, to visit other shops. But for a lot of trades, that wasn't the process, especially here in the U S but now you have guys learning from 10 different masters. And so you're seeing these uh, traditions that were stagnant for some of them for centuries are now all of a sudden making these leaps and new technologies and new techniques. And you're seeing things improve that haven't improved for years. It's amazing. That's exactly what I was thinking about. You have all these new materials that are being introduced to traditional ways of manufacturing or, or completing a task. And what it is, is for years and years, when you came to work and you were successful producing something, you were in a silo and you were blind to other opportunities. Failure is what motivates invention. You know, failure is when you look for other opportunities or resources to develop and grow. But when you're successful, you just barrel down a path. So you have these competent, capable, but successful people, and they almost get railroaded into a silo 20 years ago, where today, even those capable, successful people are now more aware of other opportunities and methods that are out there. And so they take that capable, successful mindset and they're able to incorporate new things. And it's, it's amazing what some people are able to accomplish now. And you go, they never would even thought to do that without the inspiration that's out there now. I think another side effect is the, the rise of the micro manufacturing. Like you look at somebody like Brian or Austin, where it's, it's a one man shop actually producing a product like a, a you know, that has a, a decent segment of the market. And for that used to be the the way that everything was, you know, you had one blacksmith in town that made everything. You had one cabinet maker that, that supplied the, the the area. And then with the industrial revolution, that's, and then into the, into this century, more and more that went away. Everything got manufactured in, in, in big factories and then moved overseas. Well, now you see a resurgence of one guy in the garage, one guy in his shop being a, a big chunk of the market for these products. Uh, and and all of that is, is straight from the internet. Yeah. It's what a time to be alive. Right. So the uh, locally here, we have colonial Williamsburg, which is like a, they call it, a, I think they call it a living museum. So it's like, you can go into it and there's uh, hired people that are, they're living the traditional lifestyle. So like there's a blacksmith shop, there's a leathersmith shop, there's a cobbler, like all of the, careers that they would have had in that town in colonial Williamsburg at the, during that time in Virginia, um, they're building things exactly the same way. Like they're making rifle barrels and 
you know, muskets and stuff like that. And I remember going there as a kid and I thought like, this is so cool that you can see what it was like back then. And what's so funny to me now is I see so many of those exact trades on Instagram and it's like a really niche community of guys that are making handmade shoes. Like there's a, there's a, there's tons of guys making handmade boots like one at a time. And I think it's so cool. And I don't think that maybe it was around, but I never saw that, you know, before Instagram and stuff like that. I didn't walk through town and see anybody who's like hand making shoes, you know? Um, So I think it's cool that the internet has opened that up too, where there's, you know, there's always going to be people interested in, in certain, in, in certain niche groups, you know, right. Well, that has made it where they can find each other. So even if you're into something that's super weird and, you know, very um, just niche, you can find your people. Well, you know, a dichotomy between then and now is even the most specialized maker back then, you're a farrier. You still had to know how to make your tools, maintain your tools, make your product, package your tools, sell your tools, invoice your product. Like you still had to know how to do all these things, even when you were a specialist in one field. And now, you know, someone like Brian, he may make a certain product, but he still has the ability to outsource. Okay. You'll get the electronics from here. You'll get the hardware from here. You'll get, you know, this piece from here. And I'm going to provide you with this and some knowledge. So you can be less specialized, even in a specialized field, you can say, Hey, I'm going to just provide this part. And then for everything else, you're going to go here, 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 and here. And that combined knowledge will give you the final resulted product. Absolutely. All right. So to wrap this segment up, let's go around the, the circle here. What's something that you learned how to do on a YouTube video? All right. So Austin, we'll come to you first. I mean, I pretty much, I've learned all my machining on YouTube. Everything I know that I'm, you know, all my machinist things pretty much are, are learned on YouTube. So all my how to run a metal lathe, how to run a milling machine, every, every bit of it. People forget you're not a classically trained machinist that you used to make surfboards before. Yeah. It's like, it's like nobody ever tells them that. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Jacob? What's something that you picked up on YouTube or, or learned how to do on YouTube? I've learned basically, uh, you know, everything off of the internet. I learned, um, you know, the, the mallet I made, not as good as the ones uh, for you guys with your mallet challenges, but I learned, uh, you know, from our friend, Grant Alexander and, a few other videos and oh that's why your mallet would be much better if you watch a better video well there you go but i mean i mean i've made a mallet that now jimmy duresta owns it so i mean that's that's a, a crazy thing you know he got your mallet at the uh swap the uh, he got, one of, them. He got that, one of them that's pretty cool man so, there you go all right i'll be a little more concrete two that jump to mind is a uh, belts i have a black belt a purple belt a tan belt a blue belt and all of those were from a high caliber craftsman video. Oh, I thought you were talking about Brazilian jiu-jitsu. No, not in jiu-jitsu. I could beat anybody up. Uh, the video may or may not give wrong measurements. So pay attention before you just follow him blindly. But uh, it did motivate me to buy the materials. It's got links in it. And uh, I made the first belt and that became everybody's Christmas gifts. And it was a uh, something I would have never done if Austin didn't have that video out there. And then the other one was uh, two years ago, I made my wife a, a bag for her birthday almost exactly two years ago. And I didn't know how to so start. And I made this bag in one day by watching a bag making video and picking up tips on how to use a sewing machine and how to do, you know, squared corners to set the bag down flat and how to do zippers and all that stuff. Just 
YouTube, 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 until I got the part I needed done. And by the end of the night, I had a, a pretty quality bag, if you ask me. So uh, thank you, YouTube and the creators that populated. Thanks for joining us today. If you like this episode, please give us a review and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. So reach out to us on Instagram at Making Our Way Podcast. You can find all of our latest individual content on Instagram or YouTube. Austin is at a high caliber craftsman. Dean is at Dean underscore Duplantis. And I'm at Twisted Twine Woodworking. Thanks again, friends. It's nothing but pictures of his calves and you're the only subscriber. So <laughs> hey, I'm telling you, so I, I look, real quick, Brian, and, and I don't expect you to you know be up on all things, but I've lately been discussing that. I think the male calf is the equivalent of the female cleavage and I've been getting some pushback on it. So what I actually think it is, I think ass is equal. So male ass, female ass, ass to ass is equal, but the female cleavage is biceps and calves. I think you can go either. I think a, a nice bicep in a shirt or a, ripped up calf, you know, bending over, sawing something. I, I think that's what draws them in. I see. That's where I think you, you listen, you're listening to guys. You haven't been listening to women. It's what the do women say? The forearms. Okay. That's what I was going to yeah. say. It's like this, it's like this part right here. This yeah. is what, what gets people going. Yeah. Yeah. Guys like biceps, women like forearms. Okay. Let the debate continue. He's been listening to olive oil. I am what I am. <laughs> <laughs>